the Sound on Sound podcast. Welcome to the April Sound on Sound podcast, which accompanies the May issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob-Johns. Hello there. The Sound on Sound team has recently returned from the Music Messer Show in Frankfurt, where there was plenty of gear and software on show to get our credit cards levitating from our pockets. Some of this will get a mention in news, but first, Hugh, what have you been working on over the past few weeks? Well, I've been reviewing some loudspeakers from a company based in Switzerland called PSI Audio. It's not a company I'd ever come across before, but I'm very glad we found them because these speakers really are something quite special. In my experience reviewing loudspeakers, most of them do a pretty good job most of the time, but uh, one or two stand out as being quite exceptional, and, and I'd add these PSI speakers to that, so look out for that review. I've also been playing with Dave Hill's new preamplifier and with a preamp from Drama, so quite a few new things coming along soon. What about you, then? What have you been up to? Well, of course, I was part of the away team at the Frankfurt Show, and not being the one wearing the red shirt, I got back without being shot or vaporised or eaten by an alien monster. And since returning, I've been finishing off a few reviews. Uh, I've been trying to dream up a subject for the next leader column. And of course, I've been putting together this podcast. Hugh and I did another Studio SOS earlier this week, and that involved a basement studio in Nottingham. So that'll be appearing in print in a couple of months' time. That was quite an enlightening one. Features. In the May issue of Sound on Sound, we have a PC expert roundtable discussion that might help you make sense of any PC problems you might have, while on the musical side we deconstruct tracks by Adele, The Ting Tings, Rihanna and The Black Eyed Peas. If you want to apply contemporary mix ideas to your own tracks, this is one article you can't afford to miss. There's also another very educational mix rescue article that deals with tightening timing and taming sibilance. If you're into die-hard electronica, we also talk to Tom Jenkins, who has done more than most to get the most out of that particular genre. And our Studio SOS tackles more acoustic problems facing the owner of a small studio, along with some tips for getting the most out of an ageing old Mac. Classic Tracks focuses on Metallica's One, and we have all our regular workshops covering the popular doors. There are several biggies in our review section too, including the called Kronos Workstation Keyboard, the Firewire-equipped Venice Live console from Midas, which can also be used in the studio, and Mitek's interpretation of a classic mic design. There's another raft of sample library material, and an in-depth look at Omnisphere version 1.5, which now includes the Enigmatic Orb parameter controller. We cover more plug-in instruments from XILS and Sample Logic. we test AKG's Perception USB microphone, and we jump right in at the deep end with Avid Pro Tools HD Native. This issue also includes reviews of the Dynaudio BM5A Mark II monitors, Radial's Tone Bone Distortion Pedal, the VHD Special 6 Valve Guitar Amplifier, and Quiet Arts Waverider 2, which is an automated mixing plug-in, and I have to try that. Sounds quite intriguing. Also in this issue is a review of the VHT Special 6 Guitar Amplifier, and here's Sam Ingalls to tell us all about it. It's a pretty open secret in the world of recording that some of the biggest electric guitar sounds on records in the past were actually created using small amplifiers. Guitarists like Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page knew very well that if you take a Fender Champ or a Supro and you crank it up high and stick a microphone in front of it, you get very sweet valve distortion at low volumes, which is perfect for recording. In recent years, there's been a lot of interest in this concept from manufacturers of boutique amplifiers, small, hand-wired valve amplifiers that you can crank up at bedroom volume to get a really good recording tone. That's all very well, but the problem as far as most of us are concerned is the word boutique, which usually translates as frighteningly expensive. 
Even a very simple no-frills valve amplifier, if it's hand-wired point-to-point, will typically set you back at least £500, often a lot more, which sadly puts them out of the reach of a lot of us. That's why I was very interested to hear about the VHT Special 6, because in its specifications it sounds like a boutique amplifier. It's hand-wired, it's a point-to-point design, and if you get the cabinet that comes with it, it's actually made from finger-jointed Baltic plywood like expensive cabinets are. But because VHT do all their manufacturing in China, and because they make all the parts themselves, such as transformers, they've managed to keep the cost way down to the point where it's almost an impulse buy. So can you really get boutique quality for not very much more than £100? Well, you'll have to read the full review in this month's Sound on Sound to find out the details. But I have to say, I'm pretty impressed. It's not the quietest amplifier you'll ever own. It's not the most versatile amplifier you'll ever own. But it sounds better than it has any right to, even when I play it. Thanks, Sam. That sounds pretty good. And now here's Jules Harding, our video section editor, to tell us about what he found at the NAB broadcast show. Hi. Sound on Sound had a stand out at the NAB 2011, the National Association of Broadcasters show out in Las Vegas in the States. It's primarily a broadcast show, but it's one where there's also quite a lot of nice crossover products. You can get a feel for what kind of technology is going to be filtering down to a consumer price point over the next year or so. One of my favourite products from the show was from Sound Devices. Traditionally, they've made high-quality location sound recorders and mixers, that kind of thing. They've just introduced the PIX, PIX, 220 and 240, which are video and audio recorders. So they've both got the ability to record audio through two XLR inputs in the bottom, which are as high quality as any sound device's input device, and video either via an HDMI input or an HD-SDI, which is generally found on the higher-end cameras, so most of us will be using HDMI. Um, The benefit is that if you record straight to the memory card in your camera, it's going to be very highly compressed, whereas the compression formats used in something like the PIX, which is both Apple ProRes and Avid DNX HD, are for the most part visually lossless. They do take up a lot more drive space, though. There was also some big news from Apple, who, who introduced the latest version of Final Cut, Final Cut X, at their Super Meat. Probably the biggest new feature in Final Cut X is the fact that it's been rewritten from the, from the ground up to be a 64-bit application. It's now also capable of playing back more formats in real-time as well, which is a great bonus. You won't have to play around transcoding all your footage before you can actually edit, which is great. Um, Adobe have updated the CS5 creator suite to CS5.5 and have brought in quite a lot of new features that are don't really have time to list here across the package but probably one of the biggest bonuses is that Audition some of you will know from way back in the day as Cool Edit uh, it was bought by Adobe some time ago used to be bundled with Creative Suite was taken out and now has been added back in again it's actually quite a bonus because you'll no longer have to export a rough audio mix out of Premiere the, the NLE the editing software mix that in a separate DAW and then destructively bounce that back down and bring it back in you can actually send the rough mix to Audition live mix it in there, send it back to Premiere, and at any time you can double-click the file it's sent back and edit the original. It's a completely non-destructive round-trip process, and one I'm looking forward to being able to use. 
Well, this month's news comes from Frankfurt, uh, or most of it, because that's where the new products were launched. And it seems that along with fiscal belt tightening, the European government has also devalued the decibel. Every door at Music Mesa has a sticker on it, stating a maximum level of 70 dBs, which I reckon is about as loud as one person singing and playing the acoustic guitar, or possibly all the show visitors breathing but not talking. The reality, though, was that several companies had full-scale rock band performances blasting out all the time, so the actual SPL was probably closer to 110 dBs, which made trying to record audio for our news videos something of a challenge. The mess of videos should be edited and posted by the time you get this podcast. So go to soundonsound.com and check them out. Spectrasonics were showing the Bob Moog Tribute Library Expansion Pack for Omnisphere and also promoting the associated competition to win the unique OMG1 hardware synth, which was developed by Eric Persing. Produced by Eric, the Bob Moog Tribute Library features more than 700 new sounds for the Spectrasonics Omnisphere, and although there are some Moog sounds in there, the set is by no means limited just to analogue sounds. Sources include the Bookler Modulars, the EMS Synthy AKS, and the OMG1 competition prize itself. Leading players include Hans Zimmer, Vince Clark, Jean-Michel Jarre and Jan Hammer and they've all contributed their own sounds to the 2.4 gigabyte library. Importantly, all of the proceeds from the sale go to supporting the Bob Moog Foundation projects, which include the Moog Lab Student Outreach Programme, the creation of the Moog Museum and to preserve and share Moog's extensive archives. The Bob Moog Tribute Library can be downloaded from the spectrosonics.net website at a cost of US dollars and all purchasers are eligible to enter the competition, which involves submitting a composition utilising sounds from the library. Korg was showing a mini version of their popular wave drum, which has a built-in speaker and can run on batteries, so you can annoy people anytime and anywhere. This features a wide range of ethnic and electronic presets based on the original wave drum sounds, but they can't be edited. The drum has one playing surface, but there's also a sound-sensing clip that you plug in, and you can attach it to anything else that's good to be hit, you know, from your significant other to a bottle of water. The bottle of water is what they used to demonstrate at the show, and providing you can keep it from rolling away when you hit it, it actually makes quite a good sound. Also from Korg was the Monotribe, which they describe as an analogue ribbon synthesizer. It's about the size of a box of chocolates, and it's based on Korg's Monotron analogue generator. The instrument also includes a three-part analogue rhythm section, an Electribe-style sequencing section, and musical input via a tiny ribbon controller printed with piano keys. Built-in speakers and battery power mean you can use a monotribe on the move, and even those with no musical skills can coax some weird and occasionally wonderful sounds out of it. Universal Audio has announced the Lexicon 224 plugin for the Universal Audio UAD2 card, and that runs alongside other plugins developed for the platform by Brainworks. The Lexicon 224 uses Lexicon's original algorithm, so there's no modelling or emulating involved, other than to replicate the sonic signature of the early digital converters and audio transformers that they used in the original hardware. We'll be reviewing the 224 plugin as soon as we can get our hands on it, and I'm really looking forward to that, I have to say. Also on the software front, Yamaha unveiled their vintage plugin bundle, comprising a channel strip, plus analogue tape and stonk box models in VST and audio unit plugin formats. Now these use Yamaha's virtual circuit modelling technology, and that was first developed for their digital mixers, and I remember being quite impressed by the tape modelling when I heard it at an AES show a few years ago. The Vintage Channel Strip Collection comprises actually three plugins, the EQ601, the Compressor 260 and the Compressor 276, which appear to be based on well-known hardware processors, but we'll leave it to you to guess which ones. The Vintage Open Deck alludes to models of possibly Ampex and Studio Tape recorders, with names such as American 70s, Swiss 70s, Swiss 78 and Swiss 85. 
Yamaha model all the subtle side effect of analogue recording tape, including saturation, EQ and head bump. The vintage stomp pack again models classic pedals with several familiar phases, a vintage wah and a vintage flanger. Pricing and availability is to be announced soon. Interestingly, Rode was showing the updated design of the popular event Bass 2020 monitor loudspeaker. Apparently they've had so many requests to bring the speaker back into production that they've updated the cabinet, the drivers and the amplifier to improve both the sound and the cosmetics of the speaker. The philosophy seems to be just like the old one but better really. Our US contributor Craig Anderson was also at the show so here's what he had to say. Hello fellow musicians. In these podcasts I talk about what I'll be covering in an upcoming article. But this time... I also want to give a little insight into the process of writing the Sonar Workshop column. I started out wanting to write about how you can use multiband compression to virtually remix drum loops, and a big part of that is treating multiband compression more like an equalizer that just happens to do dynamics control. However, the more I looked into it, the more I realized that multiband compressors can also make sophisticated crossovers that let you split a signal into multiple bands for subsequent processing. Furthermore, I try as much as possible to make the sonar column relate to other programs as well, and as multiband compressors are fairly common these days, it seemed like this would be an ideal topic for more than just sonar fans. And that's how the next column came about. Finally, I'd like to thank Nell, my editor at Sound on Sound, for letting me have a few extra days to get the column in. I hope it didn't stress her out too much, and I hope you enjoy reading the column. And more importantly, Use it to create some cool music. Well, it's Q&A time, and we've received these posts just in the last couple of weeks. So the first one, somebody says, please, if anybody knows, what's the proper equalization for the ethnic percussion instrument called a rain stick? You find it on an endless number of ethnic music tracks. Is rain stick equalization just a matter of taste, or is there a rule of thumb as to what frequencies to boost or cut? Well, Paul, you've got a rain stick, haven't you? So what do you think? Well, I just happen to have one here, so I'll just make the thing go with no EQ, and you can see what it sounds like. exciting isn't it for the technical amongst you we ought to just say that that was being recorded or captured with a little karma omnidirectional microphone i got two of them for 20 pounds on ebay and we're using them to record the podcast just for the hell of it now the rain stick if anyone doesn't know what it is it's a piece of dried out cactus and it's hollowed out and cactus thorns are hammered in from the sides to form this little lattice of pins on the inside and then there are some small pebbles or shells put on the inside which rattle down and make that interesting noise it's quite a high frequency sound, so I would always advocate rolling off any low end just so that you're not picking up rumble or spill from other instruments. And like any bright percussive instrument, you could add a little bit of air EQ at somewhere between 6 and 10 kilohertz just to add a bit of brightness if you think it needs it. But with a good condenser mic, I think um, it'd probably sound fine as it is. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd, I'd record it flat by default. As you say, rolling off some of the bottom is probably a good idea, particularly if you're recording it along with other instruments at the time. And maybe just that little bit, because it's percussive, something that emphasises the transient, so a little bit of HF lift might help, possibly. But uh, no, my personal choice would definitely be to record that flat. But of course, if you're using it to write new age tracks for selling in lentil and crystal shops, then you must add at least 10 seconds of reverb to it, 50% wet, I think. That's probably the law. (laughs) 
Okay, question two. We've got a name for this one. It's Terry Taggart of Bloomingdale in America. The question is regarding the setup of monitors in a small studio. All of the articles and help features I have found speak about working with the room acoustics to create a flat response from your monitors. But before reading all of this, I took a very different approach in that I set up an equaliser between the monitor out and the speakers, and then I used a spectrum analyzer along with some white noise and a reference microphone to tune the monitors to the room using the equaliser. He says, my mixes usually end up well balanced across the many listening venues he's tried. So he says, to my mind, this fix has worked. But are there any downsides to the method other than not having aesthetically pleasing acoustic materials placed about the room? OK, Paul, you start this one. Well, of course, there are various systems available now for equalising the speakers automatically, which might be more accurate than using a standard graphic equaliser because even a third octave um, slot is quite a wide piece of audio to EQ when you're trying to fix speakers. Some of these little bumps and dips are much narrower than that. But I think your big problem is that if you've got no acoustic treatment, you're getting a lot of sidewall reflections, and they're going to compromise your stereo imaging and the clarity of the recordings. So even if the tonal balance is right, you're probably not hearing the material as well as you could. Yeah, I'd agree. There's no problem with equalising speakers fundamentally, and, and it is done widely in commercial studios. But it, it really comes down to the extent that you equalise it and what you're trying to achieve. For instance, trying to cure room resonances with an equaliser just doesn't work. You cannot physically do it. You're trying to correct a acoustic physical problem with some electronic EQ, and, and that's just never going to work. But in terms of general tonal shaping, then I don't see any real major problem with it. As Paul says, the big issue is to do with things like early reflections, which obviously equalisation can't deal with. So the kind of early reflections from sidewalls and the ceiling that might affect your stereo imaging precision... Uh, the equalisation won't work on that at all. But clearly, in your case, it's obviously working from a point of view of balancing the sound and, and allowing you to transport mixes fairly easily. So clearly, you're some way there. And if you're happy with the stereo image, well, then let's not worry about it. Yes, or the interim solution, I think, would be to leave the setup as it is, if it's working, as he suggests, but still put some acoustic treatment on the side walls to improve the imaging, because then you'll have a better focus on what you're doing. But uh, as he says, if your spectral balance seems to be OK, why, uh, why, why mess with it? This reader says, does using mono reverb create a cleaner mix than stereo reverb? Well, certainly stereo reverb dilutes the sense of location just as it does in real life, because if you have, for example, an acoustic guitar playing in a large concert hall, the sound from the acoustic guitar comes directly to your ears, but the reverb comes from everywhere in the room, and so the stereo location becomes more difficult, and the more reverb there is, the, the less of a location effect you get. So I know that some engineers do use mono reverb, which is totally unnatural, but it can work on an artistic level. And you can either pan the mono reverb to the same place in the mix as the instrument itself, or you can create a pseudo-stereo effect by panning it to the opposite side. Um, have you tried this here? Yeah, I think a lot of people do use mono reverbs, but it depends what you're trying to do. If you're using a stereo reverb, generally you're trying to create the sense of a space whether it be a, a real room or a hall or, or something more artificial. But you're trying to create a sense of space and you're going to put your instruments within that space. The more reverb you have gives you a sense of depth and perspective as well. But as Paul says, if you have a lot of reverb, you kind of blur the whole image to a degree and it all gets a bit confused and, and less precise. By using a mono reverb, you can give an instrument a sense of depth without making the whole thing become so washy that it turns into a mush. So specific lead instruments, sometimes if you put a mono reverb and make it sit behind them, you can give a sense of depth and perspective without overwhelming the listener in a sense of acoustic space and largeness, if you like. It also, of course, mono reverbs 
inherently tend to be more mono compatible than a stereo reverb. So if you're worried about how your mix is going to sound in mono and stereo, then uh, using mono reverbs will help keep that balance of reverb to direct sound more controlled. But you can't use one exclusively or the other exclusively, I don't think. I think you need to sort of blend the two together to get the, the best resulting mix you can. Yes, I think if you use only mono reverbs, then you do sacrifice some of the three-dimensional spacious effect that you get from a proper stereo reverb. Mm. Yeah, so it will tend to be very isolated and, and bitty, really. So basically it's art, it's not entirely science, so try it, and if it works for you, then it's the right thing to do. A lot of engineers do do it, and although it doesn't occur in real life, if it works, it works. It's usually the way, isn't it, really? <laughs> yes. As my old engineering teacher used to say, don't force it, use a bigger hammer. Sound advice. This month's Tech Talk revolves around the subject of equalising, specifically, but not entirely, at the lower middle end of the spectrum, because that tends to get very confused. And my theory is that the human hearing system isn't that good at differentiating sounds in that part of the audio spectrum, and it kind of lumps them all together. So you can end up with quite a confusing mess down there. In fact, Andy Jackson, who did a lot of engineering for Pink Floyd, said to me that he thought the world in general had too much lower-mid content. <laughs> I quite like that, actually. He's right, though. That, I mean, if you think about it, most musical instruments, few of them go down below 100, 150 hertz, apart from obviously bass instruments, and few of them generate much above a couple of kilohertz in terms of pure fundamentals. So there's an awful lot going on in, in a range of just a few hundred hertz. Whereas when you get up into the high end of things, you know, you've got whole kilohertz worth of range to have a bit of sparkle and, and emphasis going on up there. So the lower mid is a very busy area and it's very easy to over congest it. Yeah. It's also true that a lot of instruments and even voices have got quite a lot of sub bass energy in them that shouldn't be there. And it's a good idea to try and filter that out to clarify the mix before you even start to balance the rest of it. I mean, for example, you might think that uh, me speaking into the mic like this isn't going to produce a lot of deep bass. But if you were to look at the waveform, you'd find that some blasts of air are actually getting through the pop filter, and there's quite a lot flapping around in the 20 hertz region, and that shouldn't be there. So I would slice all that off probably with an 18 dB per octave low-cut filter. Yeah, I think if you listen to instruments individually, then some of that lower frequency content is a natural part of their sound. And, and if you are listening to an instrument individually and it's not there, then it will sound a bit lean and thin. But in the context of a mix, where there are other instruments playing, then it doesn't contribute anything useful. And as you say, it gets in the way and it starts to muddy things up. So, you know, if you've got a bass guitar playing, you don't really want low frequency bass guitar type tonalities from the ordinary guitar lying over the top because it's just going to muddy everything up. So doing that kind of bandwidth limiting equalization, I think is a very important process to go through. It's also true that you don't have to have even bass instruments sounding as bassy as you think they ought to if you just solo them. I mean, for example, you can solo a bass guitar, it's got lots of deep low end, it sounds wonderful. Then you do the same with the kick drum, lots of punch, sounds wonderful. You put them together and you wonder why you can't separate them out. And quite often in a real life mix, only one or the other needs to be generating deep bass. You can afford to actually thin out the bass guitar or sometimes you want a really fat bass sound or a bass synth and then you thin out the kick drum. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and also comes down to tuning instruments, doesn't it? I mean, okay, a bass guitar, you've got to tune it to the musical scale, but a bass drum, you can pitch that depending on the size of the drum and how you tension the skins to create different pitches. And if you can tune that to sit nicely where the bass guitar is or the fundamentals and the harmonics of the bass guitar, the mix itself will work a lot better. So it's all about thinking about the, the overall tonality of the instrumentation, how it all fits together. And I think you can learn a lot about a track by listening to it on a small speaker, such as a transistor radio, because you can still hear the bass line, but you're not hearing any of the deep stuff at all. 
fact, most of what you actually hear on a bass guitar over a small speaker exists in, I'd say, the 150 to 300 hertz bracket. And sometimes by boosting this in your mix, you can make a bass sit better in the track, and it will also translate better to small speakers. Yeah, that's very true. That's the sort of second and third harmonic range. And and that's the reason why a lot of mix engineers use things like the NS10 and the Oritones and those small speakers with very low or very limited bass response because it emphasises that sort of mid-range region and allows you to really hear what's going on in there nicely. Um, the same is true at the top end, of course. While an instrument has a well-defined lowest fundamental frequency, for example, the bottom string on a guitar, the harmonics can carry on up to the limit of human hearing and most instruments will do that and sometimes you don't really want the top end to be cluttered with all these things so you can actually bracket the top end as well using a, a filter just bring it down to smooth them out and if you listen to a lot of commercial mixes you'll find the individual sounds behind the vocals are not as bright as you might think they should be and that's that's the great danger of equalizing things when you've soloed them because you try to make them sound good in isolation and they can sound fabulous but you put them all together and we end up with mess again yeah, that's absolutely true. I think the classic example there is fuzz guitar, because a guitar going through a fuzz box will generate an awful lot of strong energy at the high end, and that just makes it very abrasive and aggressive and gets in the way of everything else in the mix, where if you roll some of that off, you still get the effect and the impression of, of the buzz guitar, the fuzz guitar, but it doesn't bite your head off in quite the same way, and it sits much more comfortably in the mix. Yes, I think that's probably the origin of the scooped Marshall heavy metal sound, because there's quite a lot of um, what I would call upper bass in there, and there's a, a presency upper mid-range bite, but there's quite a big hole in the middle, and that hole pretty much lines up with where the vocals are, so you can have this big chugging guitar, but without swamping your vocals. Mm. It is very much about shaping the instrumentation tonality to fit everything together. So it's a kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, really, and you want each instrument to have its own little space in the spectrum where you can, so that they don't overlap each other and it doesn't become a, a, an overly complicated mush, but everything has its own little space and can be heard quite clearly. And of course, the busier the mix, the more you have to attend to these things. If you've got a, a well-arranged piece of music, which isn't too busy, then sometimes you can afford to let each instrument have a bit more space. But the trend these days is to have quite a lot going on. I mean, who would believe that some of the great records that we all listened to were made using 8 or 16 track? Now, people are whinging that 48 tracks is not enough. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? You think, going back, people used to record straight to stereo and it would work, or they'd use 4, 8, 16 track. And as you say, now we've got Pro Tools, and I've, I've come across mixes that have got 40, 50, 60 tracks of stuff running. Not all the time, thankfully, but it's just the way we work because the technology allows us to do that these days. Uh, and sometimes I think that can distract you in ways that possibly aren't quite as helpful as we think they ought to be. Yes, and I think it's fair to say that the musical arrangement itself is also part of the EQ because by picking a different chord inversion, you can put that sound into a different part of the audio spectrum. Yeah, very, very much that's the case. And choosing different instrumentation with synthesizer sounds, what kind of sounds you're going to use to fit with everything else. It all has to be arranged so that it works together. You can't do these things in isolation, just in the same way that you can't equalise instruments in isolation. It's how they fit together that's the critical part of this. That's true. All final EQ and level balancing should be done with everything else playing. And synthesizers are a particularly difficult case because the factory presets are usually designed to make them sound really big and impressive in the store. So it'll, it'll separate you from your money quite efficiently. But when you try to put those sounds in a mix, you might find that you have to bracket them quite severely to make them fit. Otherwise, it'll just stamp over everything else. I hadn't thought of that. It's the wrong kind of separation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. But it's very true that, as you say, the, the demo presets and so on, they, they are intended to impress rather than to fit nicely in musical context and you need to bear that in mind sometimes 
The other question we get asked quite a lot is how to find the right EQ point to add some breathy air to vocals because every vocalist is different and my own approach to this is usually to use a high frequency shelving EQ and first of all I'll turn it up to maximum boost which highlights anything that you might like or not like and then I gradually reduce the frequency and once you get down below about 6k you suddenly find that uh, there's a lot of harshness and aggressiveness coming through in the vocal and in which case you then slide it back up until it stops being aggressive and then you bring down the amount of boost to something sensible and you'll end up with a nice airy sound that's not clawing at your eardrums. Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, the process I, I normally go through with EQ is listening in isolation. I'd do the bandwidth limiting. I'd roll off the bottom and the top as you need to to set the parameters for the instrument itself in the mix. And then you listen to it in the mix and you, as, you, as Paul says, you go through and, and turn the boost up so you can really hear what you want to hear or don't want to hear. It emphasises the good or the bad parts tune the frequency up and down until you find the, the bit that is nicest or worst and then either apply the boost or cut as necessary to sort that out generally if you can cut things it probably works better than boosting things yes i was going to say that because the human hearing system of course um doesn't seem to notice dips as much as it notices peaks and so if you can cure a problem by cutting out something you don't like rather than boosting what you do like it'll probably sound more natural yeah especially if it's a narrow cut narrow boosts are very very obvious to the ear if you're going to boost things, it has to be very gentle and very broad and very low levels, you know, only, only a few dBs. Whereas if you're doing cuts, uh, they can be quite narrow and quite savage. And you don't seem to notice the nature of the EQ. You just think it sounds better, which is kind of handy, really. Which brings us to the point of quality of EQ. Um, some of the cheaper hardware EQs and indeed some of the less sophisticated plugins, they can sound very phasey and unnatural and just hard and wrong if you use more than a little cut or boost on them. Whereas the more expensive ones or the better de designed ones, you can crank on quite a lot of EQ and everything still sounds natural. Uh, for example, the Neves sound really smooth. I mean, why do you think that is, Hugh? I think it's got a lot to do with the phase response of the equalisation. Different designs of EQ, different circuit topologies have different amounts of phase shift and I think that's a large part of it. It's not something we tend to, to measure and you very rarely see phase markings on, on a front panel of an EQ for example but I think it's something that our ears are very sensitive to and, and we can tell the difference. And I also suspect that there are distortions and other side effects when these things are badly designed because they just run out of gain bandwidth when you turn them up. Yeah I think that's probably true as well and some will introduce harmonic distortions of their own, particularly things that have a lot of inductors and transformers and that kind of thing kicking around in there. They add a flavour of their own, a uh, harmonic richness through the sort of low and upper mid-range area, which I think, again, affects your perception of the way the EQ sounds. Yes, it's probably technically not quite so accurate, but musically yet rather better. If something's entirely solid state, then it can sound quite rough sometimes, mm. unless it's really well designed. I mean, this business of gain bandwidth is quite often underestimated, but any piece of electronic circuitry, as you increase the gain, the audio bandwidth goes down. And uh, this is called the gain bandwidth product, which you have to have sufficient of if the thing's going to work at the boost ranges that you want it to work. Yeah, a lot of simplistic or, or budget EQ designs try to do several EQ stages. So let's say, you know, base shelf, mid-range perhaps, high shelf, and they try to do all of that with just one gain element, one op-amp or something like that, to handle the whole thing. Uh, and each of those stages could put in, you know, maybe 12 dBs worth of boost or cut, and expecting one op-amp to provide all of that gain for all three sections is a lot, and often they will run out of steam, and, and as you say, they can start to sound quite harsh sometimes. 
That's probably why the old passive EQs sound good, of course, because you can't run out of gain bandwidth because the EQ section is entirely passive. And it's only once you've been through the EQ that you apply some gain to bring everything back up to the normal level. Yeah, that's right. The classic designs like the Pultex and so on used to work that way. And, and, and there's, there's a lot going for it. But there are some things you, you can't do in that style, of course. I mean, you can't add gain to something. You can really only roll it off unless you contrive to have excess gain at the output stage to effectively produce that sort of plus and minus swing on the controls but uh, it is a nice way of working and it does tend to sound very smooth and very nice yes in fact i think the pull tech allows you to switch between cut and boost purely by doing that they give you plenty of makeup gain at the other end that's right yeah yeah of course all, all these things were kind of wagging the tail of the dog really because equalization is fine as a tool to help creatively tailor the sound and so on and it's useful in some cases to correct a sound that's not quite the way it should be but ideally, you ought to get the sound right in the first place, and that means getting the right microphone in the right place, getting the instruments tuned properly, particularly in the case of things like drums, where tuning the different drums and, and setting all that up properly makes an enormous difference. So if you can get the right mic and the right sound in the first place, you probably don't need to worry about too much EQ later on down the line. Yeah, other than perhaps some bracketing low and high cut. Yeah. Very wise words. Thank you, Hugh. Well, that's all we've got time for this month, and there's a packet of hobnobs that needs our attention. So it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's also goodbye from Hugh. Bye, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>